don't know me, I'm Larry Gurdum, and Pastor Trey is in Texas visiting with family today, so I said I would do the message. Um, I want to talk, title my message, The Great Debate, when uh, Dan talked a few weeks ago um, and did an excellent talk, uh, I learned a little bit about his passion for uh, dairy cattle. Um, I have a great passion for debate. I debated in high school and three years in college, and it was a lot of fun. Um, formal debate's different from what you see on TV these days. Um, basically, you um, have uh, the affirmative stand on the floor, and then in cross-ex debate, you get three minutes. They do a talk for eight minutes. You have three minutes to cross-examine them, which can be a very fruitful time for you. And then... Uh, eight minutes for the negative and three minutes of cross-ex, and that goes on for four speeches, and then there's a rebuttal speech. Um, my sophomore year, we, the, uh, it was resolved the federal government to control the supply and utilization of energy in the United States. And that's how debate goes. See, if you, if you thought I was an auctioneer for a second, didn't you? And so you say everything as quick as you can. And uh, since it was on energy, I, I was a chemistry major, so I did all the science arguments. And my debate partner was an economics major. So what you have to do in a debate is you have to come up with some terrible thing is happening and that you're going to solve it because you have this plan. And usually that means you have to finance it. So if you didn't buy my science arguments, then Barb was there as an economics major to show you why you couldn't finance it. And so... We never contradicted each other because we never talked about the same thing. She didn't understand anything about science, and I didn't understand anything about economics. We were perfect, okay? So we did really well. Um, and it really wasn't all about hardware and trophies we won and things like that, but the fact was I was at Bob Jones University, and on, on all our vans, it says world's most unusual university. So before the debate, we'd go over and say hi to somebody, and they go, oh, Bob Jones, on your van, what makes you the world's most unusual university? And we said, well, we're a liberal arts institution that still believes in the infallible uh, word of God and the authority that it has in our lives. And it was kind of one of those, oh, moments, right? And they would kind of walk away at that point and talking to each other, and I'm sure they were saying, we got some live ones here. Let's take it easy on them, you know. And then we would do the debate, and uh, oftentimes we would kill them, okay, I have to say. And uh, so now they were kind of in a, a little bit of a problem with their lives because they thought anybody believed something like that was entirely stupid, and we just beat them, okay. So then that offered up some opportunities where they would come back and ask us a lot of questions. And it was a great time to be able to share Christ with them. And, and, you know, we had opportunities that if you were a group going to that campus to witness to people, you would have never found these people. But we found them because we're in the middle of the debate. And so that was really why I enjoyed it so much as well, is because I thought we could do something that really did honor the Lord. Well, in John chapter 9, we have a man who's healed, and then the Pharisees come in and cross-examine him. And you have to appreciate the eloquent way that he replies to them. And so really, I've, I've told this the great debate because 
of how well he responds to them. And, and uh, I'll help you to try and appreciate that as we go through today's lesson. But um, we want to ask the question about who was healed. And I want to start with John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It's on page 869 in your pew, if you're using a pew Bible. But it says, as he went along, he saw a blind, man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So we look at this and we say, who is healed? Okay. Well, the interesting thing is we never learn his name. This chapter is a long chapter. His, he comes up time and time again throughout the chapter. No one ever says who he is. He's just the man who was born blind. Because as far as everybody else is concerned, he's totally insignificant. Okay? He's like the guy you might drive by every day on the interstate, and when you get off at the exit, he's holding a sign. You know, need food. You don't know his name. He's totally insignificant. And this was a man who just was down, uh, probably by the garbage dumps. That's where the, the poor held out, you know, and holding up his cup asking for alms, okay? And people walk by him. You know, he's just somebody you want to ignore. And even the disciples um, didn't understand who he was uh, because he was a man who was condemned as a sinner, okay? Based just on his birth. And this was probably a incorrect application of Exodus 23 through 6. Uh, but it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall now make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my own commandments. Isn't it like the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of that time to dwell on the phrase there, punishing the children to the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, okay? So as far as his parents were concerned, they had to be sinners. They had a kid who was born and couldn't see. And this kid was steeped in sin. This is the family you don't want to hang out with. Whatever their last name is, No. Okay, you don't play with them, you don't let your kids around them, you don't have anything to do with them because they're all sinners. Okay, what's interesting is that next line that says showing love to a thousand generations. And one of the things that, that uh, I thought about that was I was wondering if between the time this is written and this man who's born blind is there, was there a thousand generations? Because at the time this was written, they were worshiping the one true God. And his love would have been there for a thousand generations. But all they could focus on is condemnation. And they condemned him just because he was born without sight. He was worthless. He was discounted. He wasn't even worth a name. When we ask the question, who was healed? We also see 
that he is a man whose changed life would display to others who Jesus was. And isn't like Jesus to take the most insignificant person he can find and set him up to show the most important idea he can express. And that is, I am the light of the world. And so this man's life forever become a testimony that Jesus was the light of the world, the Messiah. And everybody else thought he was a sinner. But Jesus saw the worth that he had as a result. And so he's healed. There's a healing that takes place in the next verses. Uh, 4 through 7, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no other... No one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. We look at this healing, and it's, it's truly miraculous. But it's interesting to me is that the disciples all sitting around speculating, well, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents, you know? And Jesus says, we don't have time for that. I'm here to do the work of my Father. I'm here to seek and to save the lost. Guys, let's get busy. We've got work to do. We don't have time for idle chatter. And so he directs them that way. And as I said, this would be a demonstration that he was the light of the world. And basically, what this chapter is trying to say to people is, if you know Jesus, then you're not really blind anyhow. Um, You've got more sight than anybody else. But as we go along, on the next slide, I really wanted to emphasize, how was the man healed? Okay? And you've got to see that this really goes right back to Genesis. Okay, he spit on the ground, he formed some mud, he put on his eyes. Looks the same to me. The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, I'm going to get a little gross here. You know, women don't spit, guys do all the time. You know, and you spit and you kind of look, oh, what was that looking like, you know? But it's got all this foam in there, right? It contained the breath of God. You mix that with some dirt, and God can make a new pair of eyes. And he literally put those eyes on the man. And and he looked different afterwards because he had eyes that he didn't have before. He had new eyes. And this healing goes beyond really the fact that people couldn't comprehend it, but I can't even comprehend it, Okay? Because there have been lots of instances where children have been born blind because of cataracts. And nobody did anything about it for years. And finally somebody removes the cataracts. And they can't see. Their eyes are perfectly functioning. They can't see. Because their brain doesn't know how to process those signals. It doesn't know how to put all that sensory input in together and say, this is vision. Okay? But this guy who had been blind his entire life has his vision restored and he can see. God just didn't do the eyes, he did the whole neural network. 
He put his brain back together so that he could see for the first time in his life. And um, you just have to appreciate the gift of sight, okay? And um, well, every morning we should wake up and, just, and if we open our eyes and can see, we should praise God because it's a marvelous thing uh, to have that gift. Um, along those lines, I also wanted to mention just coming back to Genesis and a well-turned phrase. Dr. Herklotz was my chemistry professor at, at Bob Jones, and he told this story that when he was a graduate student at the University of Tennessee, um, he let it be known that he was a creationist, and that really gets people in the science area upset with you, okay? Believe me, I've been there. And uh, so this guy came in one morning, and he says, well, he came into the lab, Morning, Herklotz, got a question for you. And he went over and grabbed a cup of coffee. And he came over and he sat down in a chair and got comfortable, put his feet up on the desk. He says, Herklotz, what are you going to do about this whole creation thing? If you read tomorrow in the newspaper, it says, scientists create life in a test tube. And isn't that going to destroy your whole faith? And, he, and Dr. Herklotz said, well, I figured he had all weekend to think about this, so I had some time. So I went over and got myself a cup of coffee and then came back and got comfortable in my chair and put my feet up on the desk, looked him in the eye and said, absolutely nothing. And he's like, what? He said, that's right. He says, now if the article says dead scientists create life in a test tube, I'll become an evolutionist. And he said, what? He said, creation says that intelligence acting upon matter can create life. Evolution says matter acting upon matter creates life. So you've got to have dead scientists in attempt, uh, create life in a test tube before I'm going to believe anything. You see, God took the dust of the earth and he formed man and he breathed into it and you have life. And that is the most important argument you can make in the whole creation-evolution debate, okay? Because until you have the first life form, it can't evolve, all right? How do you get life from non-living matter? We have no logical explanation. If we did, we'd go into that, the scientists would go into a lab and they would recreate that and watch life form. They can make amino acids, but they can't put them together into proteins. You can get DNA bases, but you can't get the DNA you need to put together uh, a strand of DNA that's going to reproduce itself to make something that is live that can reproduce itself from non-living matter. We don't have a clue how that can happen. Okay? That's why you hear all this stuff about well, aliens came from another planet and they seeded the, the life forms here and then they evolved. Fine. Where did the aliens come from? You've got to go to that planet and you're going to have to get living matter from non-living matter. No way it's going to happen. So just a debate. All right? Something to think about. Okay, so I wanted to go on and just talk more about this healing. John is... Uh, one of the places, if someone's a new Christian, we always tell them to read the book of John. Why? Because he kind of puts in cliff notes for you, okay? Because he's the one that says, wash in the pool of Siloam, and he literally put there, 
this means sent. Just in case you didn't get this, all right? You don't know Hebrew? This means sent. Why? Because he wanted you to know in John 7, 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And he wanted you to know that Jesus is the one sent by the Father. He's the Messiah. You don't want to leave that off of this whole healing thing, okay? It's not just that a man was born and now he sees his sight. It's not that it's miraculous that he created some eyes for him. But you miss the whole point if you don't understand it. This is the Messiah. He's the light of the world. And so John didn't want you to miss that part of it. This healing was, was beyond comprehension for everybody that saw it. So in John 9, 8 through 11, it says, His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him being begging asked, Is this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Just in case we've got to get this debate in order. How then are your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. But I really believe that God made him a new set of eyeballs. You know, how people look, you know, it really is based on their eyes. A lot, you know. And, and when we look at somebody, we often want to look at them face to face. Look them in the eye, you know, because you can often tell if they're lying to you, Right? And so they see this guy. They've never seen him look like this before. It looks like him, but these eyes are different. They throw me off. I've never seen him have eyes before like that. Okay? But he said, I'm the man. I don't know how it happened for sure. He spit. He made some mud. He put out my eyes. Now I can see if that was a plan, then everybody who was blind would start spitting real quick, right? But only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could follow through and, and heal him in that way. Well, they were so confused by all this, they, they thought, well, let's go ask the guys that know stuff. Let's go talk to the Pharisees. Because they got these PhDs in theology and PhDs here, and they know all this stuff, and they're all read and everything, and maybe they can explain it to them. So they brought him before the Pharisee, and this is where the debate begins, okay? They brought him in, the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Major problem here. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Okay? But others ask, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. And so the question in the debate becomes, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And when I read the New Testament and you read it, you often wonder why God, why Jesus did this all the time. Okay? He was always healing on the Sabbath. Okay? Why did he do that? Because all the Pharisees, it it at least got their attention. It certainly made them angry most of the time. Okay? So is he there just trying to antagonize them? I think not. I think that even though the Pharisees were absolutely opposed to everything that Jesus did, 
His mission was still to come to seek and save the lost. Okay? And sometimes, as you're watching today's news, you see some of the people of prominence and the things they say and the things they do and you just want to tear your hair out. Okay? Because you're so frustrated with them. But I think you have to have a different point of view. One time we were at a debate, Barb and I were there, and we were getting ready to, for the award ceremony, and this big guy came in, and he was really obnoxious towards our, our, everybody from our school. He was really a terror, you know? And I really hated him, okay? And, and Barb said, I'm really praying for that guy. And I was like, why? Okay? What is wrong with you? And she said, look it. He comes in and everybody turns around to see who's here. And he commands all of their respect. What if he became a preacher? Wow, what an effect he could have on others. It never even occurred to me. But occurred to Barb. And Jesus was saying the same thing. These Pharisees have studied my word all of their lives. They know how many commas to put into Isaiah when you're copying it over again. They know how many letters are in there. They know how many jots and tittles to put in, okay? They know everything about the Word. What if they got interested in who I am? What an impact they could have. And you know, if you think about it, it worked. His name was Paul. He was a Pharisee amongst the Pharisees, right? He spent his, half his life persecuting Christians. Until the Lord got a hold of him. But what he did, he got a guy named Luke to go along with him. We got the Gospel of Luke. We got Acts. We got all the Pauline epistles. We wouldn't have much of a New Testament if that didn't happen. Jesus said, these are the people I need to reach. Because they have influence on others. And so every time you get frustrated, try and stop and pray for that person. That they might come to the light. That they might not be so blind because they could have some great influence, greater than I'm ever going to have or you're going to have, because everybody knows who they are. And what if they said, Jesus is the Messiah? There'd be a bunch of people who believe it just because they said it. And that's why I think Jesus went to them. And in fact, uh, from a debate point of view, the next slide um, shows that um, Jesus gave 11 different reasons back to the Pharisees on why he healed on the Sabbath. So he didn't just leave it at the fact that he made them mad. He said, would you just think about why you're mad? Here's 11 reasons why I can heal on the Sabbath. Now, I'm not going to go through all those 11 because we probably wouldn't get out of here till 2 o'clock, all right? But um, it's interesting to me because there are actually seven healings on the Sabbath. And I've got a list here for you. And, um, and it really points out that a large part of Jesus' ministry was to those Pharisees, to the very people who were going to put him on a cross. And he knew that. And yet he was still there witnessing, reaching out to them, trying to help them to understand he really was the Messiah. And so there's 
There's seven different times he does miraculous things, and it's on the Sabbath. And it's by design, because he's got an audience in mind. I want to go over three of these with you. The first one is, um, and on my list it's number six, Jesus heals a crippled woman. It says, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. And so the Pharisees are there, and they're like, You healed on the Sabbath, didn't you? And he says back to them, You hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his own axe or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? So you'll take the bounds off of animals, but you won't take the bounds off of people. What's wrong with healing people on the Sabbath? What is, why are you being so hypocritical about this? Now, it certainly made them angry, but it, they had to at least think about that at some point. You know, and even on Facebook you read, beware of people who care about kittens and not babies, right? You know, you gotta, you gotta think about these things and, and, and how those debates work, shape out. The next one is Jesus heals a lame man by the, by the pool of Bethesda. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else comes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Okay? And you see that in all of these, it's named, it's a Sabbath. This argument went on for several chapters. Finally, in, in John chapter 7, Jesus says, Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. You know, I know how you like to do things and how you set up your religion, but what's really important here, okay? And he, he really points out to him, you know, if, if a child's born and the eighth day when he has to be circumcised is a Sabbath, you work on the Sabbath and you do a circumcision, okay? And that's one little part of their life. I took this man who couldn't walk and healed his entire body. But you're saying that's a bad idea. Why? And so he continually brings this question back to them. What are we going to do with the Sabbath? One last time on the Sabbath, it says, uh, the man with a deformed hand. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now, I'm skipping verse 4, which is at the bottom there. But he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. But in verse 4, before he did that, Jesus asked them, what's lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? 
to save life or to kill. But they remained silent because they didn't have an answer. But what was he saying to them? What's lawful on the Sabbath? That I should take this man whose hand is shriveled and make it whole? Or to do what you're thinking? Because every single one of you wants to kill me. Okay? So what's the better thing to do? Heal this man or kill me? And the choice was pretty obvious because then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Look at the hypocrisy here. We're not going to work on the Sabbath, okay? We're not going to heal somebody, but we don't mind having a meeting on how we're going to kill Jesus, okay? They don't mind working that way, but to do the things of God, no, we, can't, we don't have time for that on the Sabbath. And so over and over again, he, he approached them and he tried to explain to them that the Sabbath, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, right? But the Sabbath was made for man, okay? This is the day when the Father wants to reach out to you and do something in your life. It's not just another Saturday. It's not just another Sunday. It's a special day of communion with God. When we come together, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And Jesus is trying to point out how important that time was compared to anything else they were doing in their lives. But nobody wanted to listen. Well, I feel like Pharisees lost that whole argument on the Sabbath, so let's go to argument number two. Let's deny the miracle even existed. Let's find some proof that this is all a lie. And so in John 18 through 23, it says, the Jews still not, did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? We know this is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes... We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. This is why the parents said, He's of age. Ask him. These are the same parents everybody sat around speculating. Is it because of their sin or because of their son's sin that he was born blind? Okay? They only had a marginal relationship to be in the temple to begin with. And they knew that they said anything that would have affirmed that this was a miracle that Jesus healed their son, that they'd be put right out of the temple. And they didn't even want to argue it anymore. They were so beaten down. They were so tired of the years of, gee, I'm not going to have anything to do with you guys, you're sinners, because your son was born blind. That... They, they just said, ask him. So, the miracle seems to be pretty real at this point. The parents said, this is our son, and he can see he used to be blind. And so, let's drop down to the next argument. I think the Pharisees are saying, so you were healed, don't give the glory to this man, praise God instead, right? And so, they said a second time, they summoned the man who had been born who had been blind give glory to god they said 
we know that this man is a sinner. Okay? So, as long as you do that, then you affirm that he is a sinner. Now, the man wouldn't do it. Okay? You've got to appreciate who this man is. He's a beggar. All of his life he'd been a beggar. He had no sight. He'd never read a book. He'd never gone to school. He had no formal training. He was just this dumb guy on the side of the road with no eyesight, as far as everybody is concerned. And here he is up against the great PhDs of the day. And to give an answer back to him. Well, look how eloquently he replies. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I'm not even going to argue that argument. I don't get to say that. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. End of the debate. Argument's over. They lost. I was blind, now I can see. Every single one of us can do that. Every single one of us has a testimony that where somebody says Jesus is fake or Jesus doesn't exist or all that religion stuff is garbage, we can say it's real in my life. And I know that Jesus works in my life and that he's changed my life. And for me, it's true. But you can decide whatever you want. But for me, it's true. And so the most important rebuttal we can give in any of those kind of arguments is Jesus is the Messiah, is our personal testimony of what he's done for me. So go on to the next argument. Okay? And they're basically saying, don't deny your religion. Return to Moses and forsake this man. You know? Let's stay true to being what a Jew's all about. So they said, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciple of Moses. We know not that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now again, here's this unlearned man. He's got to try and answer this. And he simply says, Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What a strong argument. I definitely give it to his side of the debate, okay? He's definitely the better debater here today. All he had to do was speak the truth that he knew. He didn't know anything about Moses and the prophets, so he didn't cite any scriptures. He just said, I was born blind, and now I can see. And this doesn't happen unless God is in it. And if God is in it, then he must have used this man that you don't know where he came from or who he is, but he did it. Okay? And they knew it was all over. The debate's ended. But it's, it's a lot like when you watch TV these days. You can win all the arguments. We just go ahead and move on, which they did. Next point was simply character assassination, then, right? To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. You were born into sin 
your parents are sin, your whole family's sin, and you would say something to me, a Pharisee who serves God all of his life, how dare you? And they threw him out. Because if you can't deal with the argument, you better get rid of the arguer, I guess. Okay? Well, that's the debate. Who is Jesus? And you really have to answer that for yourselves. Uh, Whenever you're talking about it, you don't want to become so passionate that you're, you're trying to defend Jesus because he really needs no defense. Okay? And Jesus said, For judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus just turned it back to him and said, If you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. That's the person that I fear most for. Not the person who doesn't know anything about religion. It's the person who thinks they know everything about religion. And still would say that Jesus is not the Messiah. Okay? They're born blind. And, and they're going to stay in that blindness by their own personal choice. It's not time to, to go out of your way and defend Jesus. He doesn't need a defense. He can defend himself on his own merits and the things that he's done. All we need to do is to come back to the grassroots and say, this is what Jesus did for me. And you can believe it or not believe it, but you have to deal with it. And there are going to be people who are, say they can see, but they're blind. And uh, just like the Pharisees. And we can get all frustrated with them, or we could have the insight of Jesus of saying, I came to seek and to save the lost. And if you're lost, you're on my, you're on my agenda. Okay? Everyone counts. Whether you're a Pharisee or a blind beggar off to the side, everyone's important to Jesus. And everyone needs to hear our testimony of who he is and what he means in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time together. I pray that uh, something that from your word today would be an encouragement to each person here today. Help us to get through the week in serving you and taking forth your testimony. In my name I pray, amen.